text is Romans 1. Beginning at verse 18, I'll read through uh, verse 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The subject of our text is one of the most, one with uh, most people would prefer not to, to think about. It is the wrath of God. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this. On his second missionary journey, he wrote the book of Romans from Corinth uh, in the midst of a culture that was absolutely devoused with all matter of sexual immorality. If you remember, while he's there, First Corinthians 5, he, he deals with a church that that is setting aside uh, morality in the name of obedience to the gospel. They were answering his rhetorical question that he asked in, in Romans 6, what are we to say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? They were answering it not like he answers it, or God forbid, as it's translated in the King James Version, may it never be. They were answering it, yeah. That's, we've got our, our um, gospel license to do whatever we want to. 
And Paul castigates the Corinthians and um, it results in the purification of the church. I believe something similar is going on in our own uh, family of churches. This is why I chose this text on the eve of traveling to our General Assembly, just so it'll be fresh in my mind and, um, and maybe our, my fellow travelers as well as uh, all of you. So it will inform you on how to pray. Maybe you grew up in a church like I did where, where uh, you only emphasize positive things. You know, you don't talk about uncomfortable things. So I don't know if anyone else had that, that kind of uh, experience. Uh, and and it's, it's the default uh, uh, setting for most preachers. We don't like things that uh, make people uncomfortable because we hear about them and it makes us uncomfortable. But it, it is wrong to ever shrink from what the Bible clearly says and clearly uh, defines. The subject of the wrath of God toward rebellious sinners is not popular. Far from that attitude, as possible should we run. It should delight us. It should fill us with joy that we serve a righteous God who is full of wrath against sin. How would you feel to live in a society and I, and, and I, Honestly, this is where we've arrived. I wrote, uh, this is a repeat sermon. So when I look at, look at some of my references, I smile. I preached this first, the first time 30 years ago, or no more than that. <laughs> a long time ago. Over 30 years ago. But, try to make it more. What if, what if, what if wickedness was never uh, uh, dealt with? What if we lived in an absolutely lawless society where, where murderers were never brought to justice, where uh, rapists were never brought to trial, where child molesters were never prosecuted and put away? We would be filled with rage. Well, sadly, we have come to that place. There is an absolute need for justice in, in, in our world we live in. And if we take that a step further, there's an absolute need for justice before a holy God. Verse 18 tells us that God's wrath the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, not just some selected ungodliness, but all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
So God is a God of righteousness. How then do we know what anchors him? And immediately, uh, Paul answers the question that comes up in so many people's minds. How, how can a wrathful God punish people who don't even know right from wrong? He's writing this part of uh, his epistle. This first thing he confronts is the pagan culture which he is immersed in in Corinth. As he writes back to, as he writes uh, to Rome where he's hoping to go. He's hoping to get to Rome. He's close. He's halfway. He's more than halfway there. He's on his way to Rome. But guess what? There's a famine back in Jerusalem. He's not going to be able to get there. He's writing this letter thinking he's going to get there, but no, he's going to have to take up a collection for the for the uh, the, the poor in Jerusalem who are who are suffering miserably because of persecution. He's going to have to get back. And then he's going to get arrested while he's there. And then he's going to appeal to Caesar so he uh, will uh, get to Rome in that way. And he will sit there in prison for two years awaiting a death sentence. God using that time, that, uh, time to write uh, the Word of God. The Apostle Paul would write the Word of God. I'm going off on, on an aside. But this is his, this is his circumstance. And what he says is crucially important. What he says is that people know who God is. They know that he is righteous. They know that he is holy. They know that he will exercise vengeance. He, they know it instinctively because God has made it plain. And how has he made it plain? He's made it plain by the fact of his creation. It says that his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, that all those things about God are clearly seen in what he has made. And the fact that he has made human beings in his own image, and he has given them, as a result of being human beings, a moral sensibility, a sense, an innate sense of right and wrong. He's seen in the, in the order and the design of creation. They know instinctively there is a God and that he is righteous. And ever since pagan times, ever since uh, the fall of man, man has, uh, mankind as a whole has sought to ignore what is clearly said, both in the book of nature, the book of creation, as well as the book of God. A little insider baseball in our family of churches, we have, a, we have this raging discussion about uh, apologetics and, and how we view the Bible and how we can know it is absolutely uh, the word of God. And it's the difference between a a presuppositionalist understanding of the scriptures that we just take it by faith to be what it says it claims to be the infallible narrative word of God that's presuppositionalist uh, thinking uh, the most famous theologian of that type is uh, the, the famous professor Cornelius Van Til uh, and uh, others who have followed after him we don't argue about about the particulars of scripture we simply take it by faith that it is what it is 
the infallible and errant word of God. On, on that side, there's one side of the uh, conversation. On the other side is the uh, evidentialist, the classic evidentialist. The most famous evidentialist you've heard of is a fellow named R.C. Sproul. And he, and he writes in his commentary about these verses and he says, it's clear that you can know by the evidence of creation that uh, the Bible is true and what God says is true. So which one, which one of those uh, do I think is right? I think they're both right. <laughs> I think one doesn't contradict the other. Um, it, 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 is, it is evident. The, the scripture says here it is evident. And it's so evident that everyone, you can't, you can't talk about uh, the heathen in, in, um, in Africa or wherever who's never, never uh, heard the gospel uh, they're being unaccountable because it's clear from the Word of God and from nature that they are accountable and they are under the rightful judgment of God. This myth that there is some kind of noble creature uh, going back all the way to the 18th century Enlightenment, there's some kind of noble savage has always been with us. Even today there are whole areas of the, of the Amazon basin where missionaries aren't allowed to go for fear that the, the uh, gospel will somehow pollute them and they won't, uh, they won't be pure anymore. Uh, there have been many uh, programs uh, that have been aimed at trying to glorify uh, such savagery. I never will forget watching one years ago about this supposed noble savage, this, um, this um, uh, boy who was kidnapped and he was taken to a, uh, a, um, a savage tribe and raised and they did a documentary about it and, and how wonderful it was. And I, and I was just in shock. I mean, the people were digging up their dead ancestors and 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 uh, mixing them with their food they were they were living in horrible squalor and filth and this was so, so supposed to be some wonderful uh, a culture and to me it was it was straight out of the pit of hell there is no such thing as a noble savage apart from the gospel, life is brutal, is nasty, and it is short, to quote an English philosopher, Thomas Hobbes. These things that are true about us, they point to God's invisible attributes. This world exists, the things in this world exist. There is not one, one because God made it. And he God made a universe out of, of order. Uh, how can you look at, at any part of creation, whether it's the arrangement of the planets and the stars and, and the orderly aspect of the universe? How, how can you look at uh, the big picture and and not marvel at the design and the perfection of the systems 
that he has made, whether it's looking at the expanse or looking at the tiny details of the atom, there is an incredible order that could not exist without the Creator. And yet, there are very intelligent, wise people who deny these truths. Whether they are the ancient Greek philosophers and poets that no doubt the Apostle Paul was thinking of when he wrote these things, who denied the very, uh, uh, who, who made such incredible observations about nature, about animals, about people, about water, about uh, the things that uh, that uh, we we still know and practice about the, uh, the scientific method today, and yet at the end of it all, they foolishly deny uh, the gospel, and they do not honor him. As God. What is the consequence? Verses 21 through 32 tells us the consequence is God's righteous wrath. He will uh, judge them inasmuch as they have rejected the truth that He has plainly revealed. The so called wise people worshipped idols, worshipped images. They believed in conjured up fairy tales out of their own imagination. And and uh, they're still very popular. I noticed, uh, I, I, I saw, I think, my first movie in several years here the last uh, few weeks. I won't tell you what it is, so you, might, you, you won't stumble, but it was a very good movie. And someone took me on uh, to for my birthday, and I'm greatly appreciative. But I couldn't help but watch the previews. You know, you go and see the previews, and all of them are about these uh, these uh, so-called uh, gods and uh, these so-called powerful people, and they are despicable. And that's who the ancients worshipped: these gods who were morally bankrupt. And they, if you go, if you take a tour of ancient Rome or ancient Greece or, or even uh, the Middle East, you go to any Roman ruin or Greek ruin, you'll see the temples of these gods, these magnificent ruins. And they worship them. That's what Paul's talking about. They have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and snakes. And so God gave him up. Note the progression from idolatry to sexual debauchery. It's an important, important uh, spiritual truth. I would say to you that we are a nation awash in idolatry. I think the most analogous thing in our present culture to what Paul is talking about here is pornography. It is soul-eating, despicable, pornographic images that people are running to and worshiping. 
earlier in my ministry was almost always men. Now I am seeing that this is spread to men and women alike. It is vicious and pernicious. And at the heart of it is worship. It used to be uh, common to speak about God's wrath that is coming upon the society for sexual immorality of all kinds, and now it is seldom spoken of. It, will, it should not surprise us in the least that we have the scandal of the day from every religious organization. Brothers and sisters in the Southern Baptist Convention just last week had this massive expose of, of uh, sexual uh, problems. The Roman Catholic Church has famously had all kinds of scandals. And I dare say that we have our own in our family of churches. And again, why? And the answer is this exchange of the truth of God for the lie of the world. We've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the source of this debauchery. The reason we have a spiraling epidemic of What do we, what do you know what to call it? It's what, giving up natural relations, that's what the scripture calls it. I call it that. I read a statistic, 36% of people under the age of 30, single people under the age 30, identify with this, this uh, rejection of God's natural order of sex being reserved for marriage on the LGBTQ whatever spectrum. I would, I would love to say I don't believe, but I, I honestly do think it's that bad. And the source of it, again, is idolatry in which people have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. But let us not despair to think that God's hand is so short that he cannot deliver us from it. The Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote about the power of God to change lives. He writes uh, later about, about immorality in first, first Corinthians, and, and he writes about all manner of sin, and, and he says, such were some of you. You once were this, you aren't anymore because of the power of the gospel. This passage, more than any other, is absolutely hated by those who want to say 
but you can identify in this uh, spectrum of unnatural desires and unnatural affections and still maintain uh, uh, that you are a Christian. There's no possible way. That is, that is, that is not even possible for any reading of this text. One of my heroines of this present hour is a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. How many people have heard of Rosaria Butterfield? Most of you have. If you haven't, you should familiarize yourself with this, this courageous, godly woman. Uh, all you have to do is put her name in an internet search and you will see her testimony. It is one of the most powerful testimonies of the power of the gospel to change someone you'll ever, you'll ever hear. She's written a book What's the name of that book? It's the secret. Uh, say it louder. Secret thoughts of an unlikely. Yeah, secret thoughts of an unlikely. Thank you. Secret thoughts of an unlikely convert. You should get this book if you haven't gotten it already. But she tells her testimony in detail how she is the head of the LGBTQ studies department at Cornell University. She is a a major professor who has devoted her life uh, to lecturing and, and preaching the, the uh, value of, of this. And then she's befriended by a local uh, reformed pastor and his wife who began to uh, minister to her by first by writing a letter telling her that she's wrong. She's a letter that sits on her desk and she, you know, she got all kinds of hate mail from other Christians, and here she had this thoughtful uh, letter that, that exposed her uh, sin. And she kept coming back to it until finally she worked herself up uh, enough courage to visit his little church. And she went in and, and uh, wasn't converted right away, but they handed her a Bible. And so she decided, well, I'm going to read the Bible. In fact, I'm she knew about the, the passages and she knew about Romans 1. She said, I'm just going to go there. And she, it's funny, she describes it as kryptonite for the LGBTQ movement. Because there's no way around what it plainly says. Women and men giving up what is natural to commit shameful acts, shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. God has a design for sexuality and it is a, his design for sexuality is a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing that he's given us. And it's the reason every single one of you is here tonight, by the way, in case you didn't figure that out yet. It's glorious. And it shouldn't surprise us at all that the devil comes into that arena. He came into it at the beginning uh, of time. As soon as he was cast out into heaven, I believe, he was thrown into the garden to destruct the crown of God's creation and lead us into rebellion against him. 
We should never cower before a pride parade. We should never cower before anyone, whether we're related to them or not. You know, we, we so desperately want to hang on to relationships. But we're not loving anyone if we don't tell them the truth about their rebellion and their sin. And we can do it with love, or with, without hatred, without malice. We are at one point, we should do it as uh, those who were at one point ourselves in rebellion against God. And God has mercifully uh, delivered us. And we should do it in such a way that we, they know we love them. And it is God's initiative that will bring them to the truth. And it's not just unnatural affection that's in view. Look at the rest of these verses. Look at the look at the uh, the downgrade of disbelief and what it leads to. There there are this ascending group of evil deeds, beginning with unnatural acts, but then. There's four more in verse 29. Unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, covetousness, and depravity. General depravity. And then, and then in verse 29, there's five more things that are mentioned. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. And then, uh, then after that, there's 12 more. Gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, faithful, faithless, loveless, unmerciful. Uh, it's not just the one sin, it's all sin that God hates. But the last step. This is what our culture is, is forcing upon us. And this is what God is calling you, child of God, to resist wherever you're located. If you're in academia, if you're a student, if you're in the, in the uh, corporate world, it's there. It's not only that those who practice this kind of evil but those who give approval to those who practice them who are under the righteous judgment of God. This is the challenge before us. And I know what's driving, in part, what is driving this current discussion among our family of churches is, are all these things, these pressures, these pressures to um, fit in. Who wants to be uh, the meaning? Who wants to be the one who, who says bad things about anyone? It's not loving to ignore sin. We're not loving our loved ones. We're not loving our colleagues. We're not loving our neighbors. We don't tell them the truth. In love. 
of saying the truth without love that is, is, that is wicked. I know that. But if we truly love the lost, like the Apostle Paul loved his lost relatives, we would wish we could be accursed ourselves in their place if that were possible. It's not possible. This is, this is written, the first chapter of Romans is written to the Gentiles. The second chapter is written to the Jews. And Paul proceeds to tell them, you think you sit in judgment on, on these Gentiles? Well, let me tell you, you're guilty of the same thing yourself. Everyone needs the righteousness of Jesus. The whole point in, in underlining this depravity here is not for us to get filled with some sense of self-righteousness or that we're better than someone else. It's to be filled with, with humility. That we have been brought into the presence of God. God will show no partiality to the Jew or the Greek who's in rebellion against him. All fall under his righteous wrath and just judgment. The only way to escape it is through the gospel. That's why Paul wrote Romans. It is a glorious exposition of the good news that God loves sinners who repent and turn to him. May we search our hearts. May we search our minds. May, may we come to the place where we truly love enough people enough who are in rebellion against him to tell them the truth. And then may God be pleased to use the truth of the gospel to change our culture, our world, our loved ones who are in rebellion against him. It's only the, the nothing, no amount of persuasion on our part, no amount of argument on our part is going to do it. Only the power of God is going to do it. And he'll use his word. He'll use the ordinary means to do it. But we must be faithful to his word and not alter it to accommodate the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. On the one hand, you are righteous and holy and just and you will by no means clear the guilty and on the other you are loving and kind and merciful and these two things meet together in the cross where Jesus reconciled them once and for all for those who trust in Jesus may each of us trust in him may we love those in rebellion against you enough to tell them the truth in love. And may you be pleased to use the truth of the gospel to bring transformation. We do pray for that in our own family of churches this week as uh, men gather to deliberate and do your business. May you be pleased to bring reformation and revival uh, to us. And not only to a family of churches, but to our, our, our church here as well as our homes and, and our, our 
places of hope. May that revival spread. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.